following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, any, uh, any baseball fans in the room? Yeah, when you say that to a room full of artists and scientists, <laughs> which is the, the makeup of many of the people here at Artisan, you don't get very many artisan woos in return. Uh, I'll tell you what would make you a baseball fan. How about a six-hour baseball game? Who wants to watch that on TV? Uh, I see that hand. Uh, it's my son, and he and I watched this game yesterday. Uh, one of the biggest rivalries in sports, Yankees versus Red Sox, and I'm happy to report that the Yankees won in the 16th inning after five hours and 50 minutes of very riveting action. <laughs> and it makes me think, the Yankees and the Red Sox, that's a very... Uh, it's close to most of us. Even if you're not a sports fan, you kind of know that's a thing, right? And um, the passions run high on both sides. And uh, I, think, I think fans get as much pleasure out of hating the other side as they do supporting their own side. Have you noticed that, right? So I used to be a, more into the NFL than I am now, and I was a fan of the football team from Washington with the racist name. And... Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, their big rival is the, the Dallas Cowboys. Um, and I long stopped following whether, whether that my team wins every week, but I still get this very kind of visceral pleasure when I see the Cowboys lose. It's the weirdest thing. Um, you know, and as a way of enjoying sports, the national pastime or whatever, it, it, it's fine, but sometimes I think it actually goes deeper than that. And, and if you... If you um, feed that part of your personality too much. It's unhealthy and harmful. Um, let me tell you what I mean. I want you to think back to a time, if you're a sports fan, let's, let's, let's assume that you're a Yankees fan. It's not necessarily true, but most of the, the baseball fans in the room um, probably are, so there's like two Yankees fans in the room. Um, <laughs> but if you're a Yankees fan, imagine you're, you're driving on the road and you get cut off by somebody and they have a Red Sox sticker on the back of their car. Don't you sort of say, oh, it figures. <laughs> right? The Red Sox fan would do that. Right? Meanwhile, somewhere there's a Yankee fan cutting off a Red Sox fan, and the same thing is happening in reverse. Right? This also, by the way, applies to, uh, to politics. If you get cut off uh, on the highway and you're a more conservative person, and, it, and it's a Prius with like the 17 different bumper stickers on it. <laughs> you're like, oh, a liberal would drive that way. Right? Or if you're a, a more liberal person, and it's a giant pickup truck with the eight-foot decal of the eagle in the back window. You're like, ah, oh, conservatives. They don't, they don't care about anybody. Right? So it's what, it, what it is, is tribalism. We want to draw our boundaries. Uh, we want to circle our own wagons. We want to know who's on our side and who's the enemy. We want the lines to be fairly clear. I think it's part of our makeup as a species. And I think it poisons our relationships with each other. As far as the, the political form of tribalism goes, um, 
I don't know if I've ever seen it worse in my whole life. I'm not that old, but I'm getting up there. I've been paying attention for some time now. And I don't think I've ever seen it so bad. I've been guilty of it myself. Uh, It makes me sad and disappointed and sort of despairing sometimes. But what makes me even sadder is when I see that same propensity, that instinct toward tribalism applied to the Christian faith. Um, If you have a Bible with you, um, would you please turn in it to John 15? And if you don't have a Bible, we have lots of these red ones around. Looks just like this. They're under the seats or in the backs of the seats. We put the page number up on the screen, 878 in this case, for, uh, for the Red Bibles. And our text today, actually a holdover from last week, is John 15, 18 through 27. And I'd like to read it to you now. If the world hates you, beware that it hated me before it hated you. I'll pause to say this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. If you belong to the world, the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. Servants are not greater than their master. So if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But they will do all these things to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. It was to fulfill the word that, was, that is written in their law. They hated me without cause. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who comes from the Father, he will testify on my behalf. You also are to testify, because you have been with me from the beginning. If the world hates you, Jesus says, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. And in that little sentence... Generations of Christian culture warriors have found a way to justify their rejection of the world that he made and of the beloved image bearers who populate it. Now, I am dismayed that these words of Jesus have been used to foment a division between the church, the the body of Christ, and the world. Because I don't actually believe that's what Jesus was trying to say in this teaching, in this warning that he gives his disciples. But because we are given to that type of tribalism that wants to draw the lines very clearly, that wants, us, wants, to, to, wants to make it possible for us to know who's on our team and who's on the other team, we read a text like this and it kind of feels good. To interpret it in such a way that says, good, bad. 
Right? Pick your direction that you would point. I didn't mean <laughs> you guys. <clears throat> Our whole human makeup seems to cry out for this kind of segmentation. We spend so much of our time building up walls and drawing lines, and we take great joy in it, <laughs> right? Because you, don't you kind of feel good when you, when you scream at the Red Sox fan who cuts you off? Doesn't that sort of make you feel good about yourself? Self-righteous, maybe? Then when it comes to the, the thing that really and truly does make up the core of our identity, if we're Christian people... Our faith in Jesus is the thing that defines us. That is the one thing. But we not only, if if that's the thing, we not only get to indulge that kind of common level tribal instinct, but we actually also get to feel literally self-righteous when we do it because then it really is about eternity, right? It's about all the things that matter most in the universe. So to hear Jesus say, if the world hates you, just those few words, the hair on the back of our neck stands up a little bit. We start to get excited for the fight. If the world hates you, he says, and you can see the disciples' eyes getting bigger, saying, here comes the good part. But here's the thing. Not everything that Jesus says to every group of people or every individual person is intended to be applied across the board for all of his followers in every situation throughout time. Otherwise, instead of, or maybe in addition to, passing the peace, we would walk around the sanctuary saying, get thee behind me, Satan, get thee behind me, Satan, get thee behind me, Satan, because he did, after all, say that to one of his disciples. That's an absurd example, but you see what I mean. In this case, uh, by way of interpreting what he's saying right here in John 15, I would suggest that he's speaking to this very particular group of people, his closest disciples, his, uh, his top 11, right? just, uh, uh, just Tom and uh, a few others. And yes, that is a MySpace disciples mashup joke. <laughs> that did not exactly hit, but okay. <laughs> Listen to it on the podcast. You'll get it. Because <laughs> he has a disciple named Thomas. All right. Sorry. The point is, he's talking to these close friends. And the persecution that they would endure at the hands of the same people who would persecute Jesus, who would arrest him, put him on trial, condemn him, and execute him. And so maybe, just maybe, it's not the wisest application to take this warning that he gives to these 11 people, 12 minus 1, and turn it into a a blanket us-versus-them policy about the church and the world. Not least because it would be inconsistent with what the entire Gospel of John has to show us and say to us about how God in Christ views the world that he made. I hinted at this last week. I wonder how many of you went and did the research I suggested. I suggested you go to an online Bible, and uh, in the field that says search for words or something like that, you search for world, right? And then it'll turn back all these results, and then you can, somewhere on that page, will be something where you can click just the Gospel of John to see just the 58 occasions where the word world is used in the Gospel of John. 
This is a very simple way to study the Bible with an online tool. You can all do it. And then you can go through and say, okay, in the big picture, what does John have to say to us? What, what does John want to communicate to us about Jesus and about God and the world in this particular piece of writing? Let me give you a very quick summary so that you don't have to do the work right now in your seat um, and then get distracted and start checking Facebook or whatever you would do. <clears throat> First of all, uh, as I said last week, the Greek word is cosmos, which I think is pretty super cool for fans of the uh, TV show. But here's how it happens. It starts right at the beginning of the gospel in that soaring, poetic prologue. John writes that the true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. There's our first, first bit of information about how God sees the world. Next verse, he was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. Speaking of the world's relationship to Jesus, that Jesus made the world and the world didn't know him. Shortly thereafter, we see John the Baptist saying of Jesus, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we have John 3, that clandestine rooftop conversation between Nicodemus and Jesus, where we read probably the most famous verse in all the Bible, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. And then there's the less quoted counterpart, John 3.17, which nobody holds up on a big sign at a football game that says, indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. This is echoed later in John chapter 12, where Jesus himself says, I do not judge anyone who hears my words and does not keep them, for I came not to judge the world, but to save the world. Now even there, you start to have a little bit of the foreshadowing of the tension, because um, right, after that, right in that conversation with Nicodemus, he also says, uh, this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Now, rapid fire for the next few chapters. John 4, the Samaritans call Jesus the Savior of the world. In John 6, Jesus describes himself as the bread of God, that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, my body. John 8, and then in 9, and then in 12, Jesus is identified as the light of the world. More recently in our narrative, just right in this little run of John that we've been in for a few weeks here, we, he starts talking about the spirit of truth, the advocate whom he'll send. He says that the world cannot receive it. He says that the world will no longer see him. And then when he says that beautiful thing, peace I leave with you, my peace I give with you. Do you remember a couple weeks ago how we talked about who he says, I do not give you peace as the world gives And then he says, I'll not talk, talk, no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. Talking about the accuser, Satan. There's tons of references to the world in John 17 where Jesus prays for his disciples. We won't have time to go into all of that, but I hinted at that a little bit last week as well. And then quite famously and very importantly for our understanding of the way of Jesus, he answers a question when he's on trial by saying, my kingdom is not from this world. 
And then the, the, the book of John closes like this. There are also many other things that Jesus did. If every one of them were written down, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written, which has nothing to do with my point, but I think it's kind of a whimsical ending, and I, so I wanted to quote it to you. <laughs> what is my point is this, that on the whole, John's gospel gives us a very positive view of the world and of God's posture toward the world. The world is the handiwork of Jesus. It's the object of his love. It's what he came to save. It's what he came to feed. It's what he came to enlighten and not condemn. Even the mention of judgment for people's sin and evil that we see in that little quick study that we just did, they seem to refer more to the fact that the consequences of sin are an inability to see the full story and to access its beauty and meaning and truth. So, if we are people who follow Jesus, Christians, the world is something that should be embraced, lived in, loved well, enlightened, and saved. We have a part in all of that work. That's the big picture of what we as Christians are supposed to think of when we think of the world. So it would be the worst kind of cherry-picking to take this verse at the beginning of our passage today and the world hates you and to, and to let that kind of incite us to religious tribalism. But let me say this. There is a line. There is a line present in this text, and I want you to be aware of it, and I want you to think about which side of it you're on and what that means for you. It's not the line between a world that hates the church and a church which in return hates the world. Again, that would be tribalism showing through. Look at verse 19. If you belonged to the world the world would love you as its own. Because you do not belong to the world, literally in Greek, because you are not of the world. But I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you, if you don't belong to it, in other words. So the question you have to ask is this. The line you have to find is this one. It's not, are you doing your part in the battle between the church and the world? Rather, It's who do you belong to? That's the question I want you to answer for yourself. That's the line I want to invite you to step over if you find yourself on the wrong side of it. Who owns you? Is it the world and all of its requirements and expectations? Or is it Jesus with a very different kind of call? And there's that verse in Joshua that says, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I think that's kind of a good verse to think about here as well. There, There does come a moment when we have to think about who owns us? Where have we pledged our allegiance? Is it to Jesus or something else? Or someone else? 
And the warning stands true in some ways. You will be potentially hated and condemned and cast out. And in certain parts of the world, you might experience the same fate that Jesus and his disciples all experienced. Unlikely here, but it's possible in other parts of the world. Because if you stake out your allegiance rather than to Rome, in the case of the disciples, you could possibly substitute America or Judaism or Christendom or any number of other tribal groups that require complete allegiance and come up with a similar analogy. But if you place your allegiance with Jesus and not one of those other things, there will be blowback. There will be consequences. At the very least, it's going to require a change in your life and your lifestyle. But it might, it might get worse than that. Possibly much worse. But that is a warning about how you might be treated and what you might experience as a result of your decision to step over the line into being owned by Jesus rather than being owned by the world. It's not a prescription for how you ought to treat others. Because remember how Jesus elsewhere teaches us to respond to people who persecute us? What does he say? Matthew 5. It's right there in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And all of the martyrs of the early church exemplified that. As they were standing in the hallway about to be taken into the Colosseum to be eaten by lions, they were praying for their persecutors. You can read the accounts. And that's what cha- that, that, by the way, is what changed the world 2,000 years ago. People actually living out the calling of Christ. It could do it again. The other thing to remember is this. We study these Bible passages in little chunks, don't we, right? We've talked about this before. We, we study, you know, 10 verses on a Sunday, and then we leave it aside for seven days, or in this case, 14 days, because we skipped it last week, too. But if you look back to what we studied 14 days ago, it's actually something the disciples heard like 14 seconds ago. And you have to put these things together. How did last time's passage end? And it ended with these words. I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another. That's literally the last thing he said right before he said, if the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. Easy for us to forget because of the way we study this passage. But impossible for them to forget. Impossible for them not to hear those two things Put together. That's quite an alarming turn if you think about it. But love is the Christian response to hate. As I said a couple of weeks ago, as a Christian, my life's work is love. And it is hard work making the connection between I'm giving you these commands so that you may love one another and If the world hates you, be aware that it hated me before it hated you. That's quite a leap to make, isn't it? But that's what faith is. That is what faith is. It's trusting that Jesus means what he says 
And it's trusting that what he calls us to is, in fact, our salvation. Elsewhere, there's that beautiful line which we sing so often here at Artisan. The labor of God is to trust in the Son. And if you start thinking of trusting in the Son as actually loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you, if you start thinking of trusting in the Son as actually rejecting tribalism and building walls and drawing lines, except for the line of who owns you, if you start thinking of trusting in the Son along that track, well then you can see why it's described as labor. Because it is hard work. And I regret to inform you, it's not the type of work that you do once and it's done. It's like painting a gigantic house so that just when you get around to the the part where you started, you can see that it's starting to chip already. It's like sanding off rust only to find that, guess what? The salt is always in the air. I don't know how rust works, actually, but you know. (laughs) You know what I mean. (laughs) You get the point, don't you? (laughs) The work never stops. The labor of God is to trust in the Son every day, over and over again. But my friends, do not become weary in doing good. This is the call of the Lord. giving you these commands so that you may love one another. And if the world hates you, your response doesn't get to be hate in return. It has to be love. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, these words are both hard and reassuring. We pray for the strength and the understanding and the courage to hear and obey them. We ask that your grace would be present just as often as the entropy and decay that causes us always to slip back into the old ways. That it would always be there, replenished, refilled, available to us for the strengthening of our souls. May we take and receive it each day as we take up our cross to follow you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Um, the reason we, one of the reasons we celebrate communion every week is because we need the sustenance, the strength, and the grace present in the body and blood of Christ. We need it again and again and again. We are baptized once. We are hungry every day. And so, our table is open All who are seeking to follow Jesus in this place are invited to come and receive. Take a piece of the bread, dip it in the wine or the juice. Remember Christ's broken body and his shed blood. You can take it right here at the table. May it be for you the body and blood of the Savior. May it be for you strength for your weary souls. And may it be, perhaps most of all, with this message ringing in our ears, an act of communion, of unity with each other and with 
Christians around the world and throughout time who have observed this same sacrament. If you'd like to receive personalized prayer, there'll be a member of the prayer team at the back of the room who can pray with you. Uh, Parents, you can go and get your kids. Um, They can take communion with you, or if you'd like to take it first without them, please just go get them right as soon as you're done. Uh, And we will continue to sing together as we close our time this morning with Holy Communion. Our table's open. I invite you to come. Amen. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.